And we are live. Got a more intimate episode here between Frank and I with uh, the other three missing due to unforeseen circumstances. But things happen and we didn't want to leave you guys without a weekly episode. We got to keep that streak going. So to keep the streak alive, we decided we'd do a little Q&A session and then we'll leave uh, a a broader topic that we were thinking about doing today. Uh, We'll we'll kick that to next week. We're thinking about doing something about uh, quantitative strategies, things like the magic formula, acquires multiple, that stuff. We'll definitely be talking about that in the coming weeks. Um, But like I said, we definitely wanted to keep an episode going. So just Frank and I here today. Frank, how you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's nice to just have two of us at once. Yeah. Got a lot more pressure on us now. We got a lot more to talk about. <laughs> For sure. And uh, this will be just a Q&A session. So it's great to see that we already have a number of questions in the chat. So we'll definitely try to get to as many as we can. So probably be a little bit of a shorter episode, not the full hour that we usually aim for. But hey, we'll see where, where uh, all these questions take us. Um, definitely trying to keep it looser this time around, but um, definitely excited to drop in to your questions. Before we do that, reminder to everyone to uh, smash the like button. And subscribe if you haven't already, so don't miss any new episodes, because we put out one every single week. We aim for this about the same time every single week, this time, whatever time that is for you, uh, it, wherever you are in the world, because we do have a very worldwide audience. It's 9.30 p.m. here in Chicago, um, but there's it's a, it's a different time everywhere. It's, uh, what, it's like mid-afternoon for you, Frank, down in Australia, yeah, right? <laughs> midday in Australia, 12.30 yeah, in the, the, ne- the The next day for me. <laughs> so, anyways, let's... uh. Let's go ahead and dive into it. Um, let's see here. Start straight from the top if you want. Work our yeah, way down. Sure. So with Lazy Investor, I have two questions. First, why do closed funds historically trade at a discount to NAV? Um, well, that, I guess that's different for each individual fund. Yeah. Often it's, uh, it's there's tax inefficiencies about it. Um, of course, they're paying their own capital gains tax. You're going to buy in, buy out, and pay capital gains tax again so theoretically it would be better to be investing in the individual companies themselves um there's also like corporate governance behind it sometime and fee structures and everything else that can what i was thinking yeah um and other than that i guess a lot of it is just market sentiment i read when i was looking into um persian square holdings i think it was Mm -hmm. um, i read something about market sentiment like if one goes down, they all go down, it kind of all just shifts together. So if um, they start to trade at a little bit more of a premium, it's usually the case across the board for most sure. um, closed funds and things like that. It is kind of weird. You'd expect some sort of closure towards NAV, but like you're kind of saying, they all seem to have like an equal spread of sorts. Um, but like you're saying, it does depend on a number of factors, fees probably being a more common one, at least in my understanding. Granted, I haven't looked at too many closed funds. I do own Pershing Square, um, but that, that's that's all I've got there. Um, so yeah, definitely look at the individual fund, um, but good question. Another one from Lazy Investor, start, uh, just moving on down the list. Second question, when you buy a company, do you create certain metrics that you expect the company to perform to? If no, then how do you tell when your thesis is wrong? Um, well, I certainly try to make broad growth projections so and i'll update them periodically i don't know if it's really like seeing if it hits certain well it, it, this is a very company to company thing uh definitely if a, if a company is expecting to hit certain growth metrics i'll probably be factoring that into my initial analysis and i'd want to be checking up on those metrics every 
a quarter or two and just kind of see uh, if they are along that trend. Has anything changed fundamentally? So it, it's a, it's an ongoing process for sure, but you definitely want to see what the company's saying. Maybe pay attention to certain metrics more than others, depending on the type of company. With real estate, for example, you're going to look at the NOI uh, for, for um, like a REIT. You're going to look at the net operating income of a property. What's happening there? How's rent collection looking? With a different company, it might be something completely different. And it certainly will be something completely different. So uh, it's very company specific, definitely. Um, anything to add there, Frank? Um, no, I think you pretty much covered it. I don't specifically write down the metrics and what I expect them to reach. I think um, you could fall into a trap of selling when you don't necessarily need to. If you say wanted to see 20% earnings growth and they grew at 16 or 17 or something like that, right. um, which is still great growth. So I think you could fall into a little bit of a trap that way. As long as they're trending in the right direction, nothing fundamentally changes about the business, then I'd be willing to hold on. Um, Probably the main thing not to do is consider share price as one of those metrics to follow. Um, yeah. As long as you look at the fundamentals and the underlying growth of the business rather than the share price, then if it's all on track, then I think there's no need to sell. And that's where a margin of safety can be a big factor. When you buy at the beginning, if you get it at a discount to what you think those projections might be, even if it falls short, you, you should be insulated somewhat um, so long as the general trend like you're getting at is in, is in the right direction. So. Another good question, lazy investor. This one's for Brad. I, I hate to answer it in in his uh, <laughs> in his absence, but let's see if we can get something out of this. Um, I mentioned on your last Q and A about VIP Shop, ticker symbol VIPS, the Chinese e-commerce giant with a flash sales um, model for premium branded products. Um, has anyone looked into that? I I have no. not. I know, have you, you've been looking a little bit at uh, Chinese companies lately, Frank, but anything on this one? No, I've honestly never even heard of it. I just put it up on ticker just soon as you're reading the question. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the multiples seem very cheap. It's about 10 times EBIT, 8 times EBITDA, 0.5 times sales. It's the theme um, it's, right now. It's It's been hit hard like all the other Chinese companies, um, but overall, I know. That's as far as I know at the company, so I haven't looked into it. Yeah, I, I got um, nothing there, so we'll move on uh, rather than say something foolish. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, after dinner, investor just barded us with a few here. Let's see if we can pick some good ones out here. Um, if you had, if you had to fully clone one investor for the rest of your life with all your money, who would it be? What a good question. Um, age oh, is a big factor here because, <laughs> like, you could if you pick something like Warren Buffett. Uh, I don't know how many decades he's got left. And if I'm trying to invest for a long time and, you know, um, so if I'm looking at it from that lens, uh, I'd want someone younger, ideally, but that that's hard because when you're picking someone younger, there's not necessarily a long track record to look at. Um, I definitely lean towards Bill Ackman, but he's not exactly a spring chicken. He's younger compared to someone like Warren Buffett, but uh, he's probably got a few decades left. Um, depending on what his career goals are, how long he wants to be a fund manager, but that's one to look at there. I know Frank, you definitely look at a lot of uh, up and coming uh, money managers who could be potentially more promising for maybe a higher risk play, depending on, on how long their careers are. And if uh, their track record um, extends out further. The one I'd probably go is Rob Vinnell or Vinal. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, he's got a track record of about 10 or 11 years or so. 
Okay. Um, I actually don't know his age. I, by looking at him, I'd guess he's maybe 40 years old would be an approximate guess. But he has a strategy fairly similar to what I'm doing, looking for these long-term compounders, um, really holding on for a long time. Some of the companies he invest in are smaller. I think he shares about or at least one, maybe two positions with me in my portfolio as well. So um, good it's start. good to know that he's uh, on track. Another one would be Andrew Rosenblum, who I know he's young, doesn't have much of a track record, maybe about three years, and he's had insane returns of maybe 100% per year just because of pretty much one investment in Redbubble, which is a company that I also own. So maybe one of those two would be where I'm looking. Of course, you can't pick some of the best. Like you can't go Buffett or Munger or even Monish right. Prabhai. Guy Spear, they're all getting a little bit too old to maybe invest the rest of your life with. Right. So one of those younger ones might be where I'd go. Could, could we do a workaround where like one one of us in, in the punch card crew clones the other and then we just kind of like kind of bounce off <laughs> and we, we all inevitably clone each other or something like that? Could that work? And then we could still actively manage ourselves, but I don't know, that might be a little too arrogant. <laughs> That's the thing about actively investing. You You, you have to be... I don't know a better term than slightly arrogant just to, to believe that you're right enough to like make high conviction bets. And, uh, and you're never really going to know until everything's done. And, and that's the, that's the hard part, I suppose, of all investing is you, you never really know. Um, but when, when you're right, uh, it pays off handsomely. We'll just work through these after dinner ones. Cause I like them. <laughs> if you had a fully fun, this goes to what I was saying. If you had to fully yeah. clone one fellow co-host of the Punch Card Investing Show with all of your money, who would it be? Um, That's tough. We all do invest fairly differently as well. Yeah, it, we do have yeah some pretty decent divergence. Um, like Quran focuses on the more downside protection, very cheap yeah. companies. You're a little bit more diversified than the rest of us. Right. Um, I'd probably have to go with Quran just because we already share a number of uh, holdings. Like at least some of our that makes sense. Bets. Uh, Pershing Square, I believe, is his largest in his public portfolio, uh, the one he runs on eToro, um, and it's it's now my largest holding as well in my stock portfolio, at least. Uh, and we also have um, within our portfolio is a large allocation towards Equity Commonwealth as well, the Sam Zell Reed. So that's a good start right there. If a third of our portfolio or a quarter of our portfolio is the same, then that's a that's a good start for me. So I'd probably go with Karan. I'd probably go with Tom just because our strategies are probably closest to being aligned. He pretty much mm-hmm. does what I do, but he applies it to larger companies. The main difference being I look at smaller things than him. But other than that, we're fairly similar in our approach, I think. Yeah. But plus, I, geography probably has something to do with that, and and Definitely. kind of your, your initial start bias. Uh, not that it's like a bad bias, but being in like the ASX zone, um, you have some advantages there, just in paying attention to things down there. For sure. Hence Kelly Partners <laughs> and the like. Another one from after dinner. Uh, what's my ideal asset allocation between real estate and stocks? Eh. I don't have a number in mind. Uh, one, the the metric I want, I pay attention to is debt debt um, my debt ratio. I don't want that to go over eighty percent at any point because that, that's getting very leveraged. Um, and I'm right around that right now, uh, just because that's a lot of debt. If the market, if all my holdings fall twenty percent, then I'm at risk of not being able to liquidate in a in a true emergency. Um, 
unless I have a lot of reserves set aside, which I don't really count in that ratio. Um, so that's, that's what I pay attention more so than allocation. Uh, granted, it's going to be pretty heavily weighted towards real estate. Um, one thing I'm, I'm trying to focus on actually is moving almost all new cash towards my stock portfolio and then leveraging that portfolio to then buy real estate, refinancing out of that real estate to then pay off the margin on my stock portfolio so that my stock portfolio becomes kind of the the liquidity vehicle to purchase real estate in the future. And that'll take a little bit of a while to get to that point where it's where I can actually just buy properties outright in cash using just the stock portfolio. But that's kind of my goal there. So whatever allocation makes sense to where I could buy properties in cash using um, margin or something from my stock portfolio without then over leveraging the stock portfolio, of course, I don't want to go crazy. Um, but that would be my ideal allocation. Whatever percentage that ends up being, it's kind of hard to say. What about you, Frank? Had, uh, I, I know you're, you're, you and Tom are both kind of looking into buying a house. Um, the real estate market in both New Zealand and Australia is different than the U.S. because of your debt products. But um, what's your thoughts on, on real estate in general, I suppose? Uh, well, personally, I, I probably will only make one investment into real estate and that will be my family home. I'm not kind of using it as... It's still an investment, I guess you could say. So yeah. if I'm looking at that type of allocation, I'll probably do that within the next year or two, which would make it a lot more than what my stock portfolio is actually worth. But of course, most of that would be debt. But from the actual dollar amount, that would make it about 80% straight away. But by the end of my by retirement, say, I would like that to be around 20%. Sure. Um, real estate, 80% into um, stocks. But... That just depends on how well I perform in the market and everything else. I'm not really trying to grow a big real estate portfolio at all. Do you care to add like any like REIT allocation, like more, um, like just to have some sector wide ex- exposure into real estate, or do you not even care about that? No, I wouldn't purposely do that. If I come across a REIT that was extremely interesting and I wanted it in my portfolio, oh, right. I wouldn't hesitate, but I'm not going to do it just to have um, assets allocated towards real estate. Right on. Okay, another good question. Uh, just because it has my name in it again, another question. <laughs> uh, do you plan on investing in anything else besides stocks and real estate? Are you going to invest in small businesses one day? Well, funny you say that. Um, so I just hired someone for the YouTube channel to do my editing. Uh, he's been doing the last few videos, and I've, I've been really happy with it. Um, so building out a team, if you can call that an investment, building out a team for not only YouTube, uh, but I'm trying to launch a house hacking website, house hacking where you buy a property, rent out the extra space. It's a very lucrative strategy potentially in the in the U.S., especially with some of the amazing debt products you have available to you. Um, so I, I want to get a blog going there um, and kind of building out sort of a media team. That's something I definitely want to invest in uh, into my own business there. Um, but then beyond stocks and real estate, uh, Trying to think of any other major holdings. I'd, I'd look into lending potentially. This is kind of within real estate, um, but maybe being a hard money lender of sorts, which is where you uh, will charge a much higher interest rate than like a bank, but you're, you're, uh, it's often used for something like someone who's trying to rehab a property. Um, I would look into that potentially where, where you offer shorter term financing to a, a friends, friends and family type investor. Um, and then you get like a, a mortgage interest on the property and 
that's something I'd look into once I have a lot more cash and a lot more and a lot less debt myself, um, potentially. But in this high inflation environment and when I'm trying to buy properties myself, not really interested in that yet. Um, yeah, that's kind of a long winded answer there. What about you, Frank, besides stocks and your eventual home, uh, anything else you're looking to invest? Uh, maybe we can just kind of lump this into alternative investments. Um, well, the only thing really is what I'm already doing on YouTube and just content creation in general. Investing a lot of time at this point, I haven't really invested much more than a couple hundred dollars. So really nothing yet. But over time, I will allocate more and more of my money back into that small business, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But it'll be a very small amount of money that I spend on that compared to all other type of asset classes. So right. I don't think I'd ever be making any private investments I think I'd need a lot more money to be even in the space to do that. Like I'm not really interested in taking over some small business in my local town. So probably not outside of the content that I'm creating already. I'm definitely interested in the venture capital type space. Um, I, my only sort of experience in running what a quote unquote business is I, I ran like a, a student organization in, in college and I ran it like, using kind of business uh, sort of pointers and, and stuff I'd read from like Jack Welch, Jack Welch's uh, management book and all that sort of stuff. And um, I really enjoyed kind of the lead, the leadership, the team management aspect of things. And um, I've always thought I've had a decent sort of planning mind. So I don't know how I do in something like a venture capital space, but longer, longer term, I'd definitely be thinking about it, but just not in the position now because <laughs> you got to have either, a lot of time or a lot of money to devote towards someone else's business essentially. And I, I don't have either at the moment. So trying to build that up first. Um, yeah. The main thing I think would be time. You'd have to kind of drop everything and that would have to be your sole focus for it to right. do well. Which uh, sounds like it'd be a lot of fun, but just not in the position to do that now. <laughs> um, so yeah, agreed. Last one from after dinner investor. This one's for you, Frank, how big, uh, how big a role does management play into your thinking about investment on average? Um, for the smaller micro cap investments that I make, it's a huge part of every investment. Um, I guess on gen- in general, micro caps are more risky than a more established large cap company. So management is the, the probably the main focus in that investment. So Kelly Partners Group being my largest holding. Most of what I like about that business is Brett Kelly and his management team and their ability to allocate capital. Um, most of the other micro caps like VIQ Solutions is a similar type of thing. So I think the smaller you're looking at a company, the more management matters. Um, when you get towards something like Alibaba, that company is so established that management still matters, but not as much as it does in a $150 million company like Kelly Partners Group. So in my portfolio, it's a, a lot of where my time is spent. How about you, Jack? No, that's well said. I don't really think I have much more to add there. Size is definitely a big determination on how important management is. Not that a strong manager couldn't turn around or really compound a already large company. I mean, we talked about, I already said Jack Welch, but look what he did to GE some decades ago. It was already a huge company, made it even bigger and, and in a big way. So it's not that it's not important once you get to the big companies, but definitely comparatively Probably makes a lot more sense to look more closely at management with a with a micro cap or a smaller company. Um, but again, everything depends on the company. Here's one from CJ. CJ, thanks for uh, stepping in a couple weeks back for for a couple episodes. Um, 
Do you have any recommended resources for getting started in real estate investing? Um, Bigger Pockets was how I really started learning about it. Uh, the first book I ever read that mentioned real estate investing was Rich Dad Poor Dad, um, which I kind of stumbled across, not even realizing what it was. Um, but that kind of opened my eyes to real estate investing. But if you already kind of know the basics, you don't, I don't think you really need to read that book or, or anything. That's really more of a mindset book and thinking like an investor. And it's certainly valuable if you're a, very, a total beginner. Um, but if you want to learn more about like the technical technicals of real estate and there's certain strategies you can employ, uh, Bigger Pockets is a really great resource. Got a lot of forums there. I listen to the podcast um, pretty regularly when I'm commuting. Uh, trying to think if there's any books. Check out. You can check out my book. <laughs> I was about to plug that for you if you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I go through the YouTube channel as well. It's another place yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and, and, and like. Um, some of Graham Stephan, meet Kevin's older stuff where they got a little more into the weeds with the real estate, I, I think is very valuable as well, especially Kevin on, on certain rehab things if you want to do stuff yourself. Um, but yeah, uh, hopefully that answers your question. It gives you gives you somewhere to start. Bigger Pockets would be my first go-to um, if you're really looking to dive into it. What about in Australia, <laughs> Frank? Is there any good... Uh, how, how big is like real estate investing as a niche. Um, I know the property market is plenty developed in, in Australia, so it's not like we're dealing with something wildly different, but um, what's kind of the the sentiment, I suppose, towards rental property or real estate investing in general? Um, it's very common here in Australia, M- much more likely for younger people to be investing um, in real estate and kind of trying to build up a portfolio over time than the stock market. Mm-hmm. The stock market over here is not very popular at all, certainly in the circles that I've been involved in. Um, it's a very expensive market right now. Like Sydney being the biggest city in Australia is one of the most expensive cities in the world, I believe, at the moment, comparable with maybe, um, is it Vancouver or somewhere else in Canada maybe? Also plenty expensive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're just insane prices. So I know there's people earning six figures Couples earning six figures each that can't buy a house in Sydney at the moment. So it's pretty insane prices at the moment. Like um, you'd pay about a million dollars, Australian dollars, to get maybe a two-bedroom apartment. So, (laughs) And that's in a a not great area as well. So it's pretty hard. It's hard to do at the moment. But over time, over history, it's been a very popular thing for Australians to invest in real estate. I think that's almost the opposite of the U.S. And the U.S. has plenty of real estate investors, don't get me wrong, but the equities markets, stock investing, day trading, it seems to be such a popular option for younger investors because you can get started with so much less. So I guess it's similar sort of bottlenecks, but uh, I think the difference is there's so many different sub-markets in the U.S. just based on its size. Plus, we got all the loan programs that add extra ability to get into homes like you can buy stuff for 0% down if you're a veteran, 5% down if you're just a normal person with a decent credit score. So um, you can get started relatively easy, even in an expensive market. Um, but it does seem kind of flipped that stock seems to be the first go-to uh, for, for many people. Um, not that real estate is not popular. Um, <laughs> do your significant others invest? Uh Sort of, <laughs> definitely not nearly as actively. Um, just some passive stuff here and there. Otherwise, pretty much all of our finances are shared, anyways. But 
uh, we have separate retirement accounts and that's kind of it. <laughs> Everything else is pretty much merged joint accounts. So um, I'm definitely doing way more of the management just because like if you're not interested in it, it probably makes sense to just do the passive route or give it to someone else. Uh, so yeah. Um, but it's not as though we're, my wife's completely out of touch with things. Uh, she's staying up to date with, with, um, with a real estate portfolio, with our stocks, the YouTube channel kind of helps with that. So that's what I got there. Um, my partner knows very little about investing whatsoever. She kind of distrusts me with our savings and money and that type of thing. Um, when it comes to our house, she'll have a lot more say in that. She's mm -hmm. probably more interested in that than I am. Um, I don't know if I personally, like, I don't spend enough time looking at houses at all, whereas that's where she spends most of her spare time. If she's thinking about investing, she thinks real estate. Um, so she'll have more say in that. And then when, with the rest of the money, that's pretty much my responsibility. She probably doesn't even understand what an ETF is, yeah. even at the simplest form. She's very just out of touch, just trust me to do my thing. So yeah, not yeah. too much input. That, that's, that's decently similar. Um, in, in my case, like my wife will have more to say with, with buying, buying our primary residence, which, you know, I, I'm fully on trying to buy this as an investment first so that we can move out of it later. And then eventually when we get our quote unquote forever home for, for having kids and everything, um, that'll be more of like a, stylistic decision, I suppose, as opposed to like a financial investment style decision. So there's definitely things that you, um, we push back on each other on. Um, but overall, yeah, it sounds like we're both in a similar boat where we handle most of the investment decisions, uh, cause it is kind of a different thing and you gotta, you gotta put some time into it if you're going to do decently. Let's see here. Moving down the list. Great questions, guys. Keep them coming. This is awesome. Uh, here's one for you, Frank. Is the investing culture in Australia centered too much around property for the majority of the population? And does that result in lost opportunities for many young people? It's a good follow-up question to what you're saying earlier. Yeah, I guess so. I did kind of touch on that already. Um, I think certainly if a young person right now, particularly in Sydney, one of the largest cities in Australia, um, really does go out and rush into buying a property, it could be a mistake. Certainly the returns you would think it's yes, it's a macro call, but those returns should slow down just to kind of balance out um, the real estate market in general. So I would hope that this is around the time that a lot of people do shift towards maybe stock market or just index investing in general. Um, I think certainly right now in Australia, that's definitely a wiser place to put your money. Um, but then Places like where I live, I'm out in a country town in Australia, about 60,000 people and real estate is reasonable. It did shoot up like everything else over the past 12 months, but it's a lot more affordable here. So I mentioned in Sydney, you pay maybe a million dollars for a two-bedroom apartment, whereas you could get a four or five-bedroom huge block for about five, 600,000 where I live. So depending on where you are in Australia, it depends on what you would want to do and how much you would want to focus on real estate. But um, for most of the population that live in those cities, certainly I think it's a risky time to be um, taking out a huge loan for a not-so-valuable property. Thank you, monetary policy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know much about the Australian market or you've never really looked? No, I haven't bothered. Um, I mean, maybe one day. <laughs> but um, 
Do you I'm ever think of investing in real estate outside of the US or is that? Definitely. Um, the first well, one place, like for our honeymoon, we went to the Cayman Islands, a known tax haven, um, <laughs> and they don't have ongoing property taxes. Um, you pay this big, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's kind of like a, uh, it's called a, like a stamp tax of some sort. But when you, when you buy the property up front, you pay a pretty hefty tax there, but then there's no ongoing property taxes after that. So it could be a decent place to park kind of your uh, backup plan of, of sorts, or just have like a nice vacation property, something like that. Um, my, my goal definitely within the next decade is to have at least like two properties outside of the U S most likely in the, in some of the Caribbean tax havens. Um, because by then I think I'll be looking to get a little, to have my defensive safety net set up right now. I'm on the offense trying to grow that up. Um, but then at some point it'll make sense to have something offshore, um, just to have something ready to go and it'd probably be in somewhere that's very tax efficient. Um, so I'm definitely thinking about it, but I'm not anywhere close to making any sort of major move there. Um, but it's on the mind. Let's see, moving on with these questions. Speaking of moving to countries, <laughs> if you had to move to another country, uh, which would it be and why? Well, time to Luis. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, do you, you have one on your mind, Frank? Well, my partner and I have talked about it a few times. The two countries that have come to mind um, New Zealand being one, which is very similar to Australia anyway. Uh, I was um, thinking and, that. <laughs> and the other one was Japan, which would be a big shift Ooh. in lifestyle. So um, for no real reason, I, it's pretty unlikely that we would do it. But I think if I went somewhere, Japan would be a country I'd like to live um, or New Zealand if I wanted to keep things a little bit more simple. Yeah. You must have like, I don't want to call it a backup country, but right next door, <laughs> English speaking, Western. Tom, Tom wouldn't be happy with that comment. Yeah. yeah right. Right. <laughs> it, well, it, it goes both ways. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> it didn't mean one above the other, but. Uh, you have Canada as a backup country. So yeah. Yeah. It's similar to that. <laughs> um, uh, I, I like my knee jerk would be something like Cayman, but. Uh, the Cayman Islands, but I don't, I don't know how living there full time would be that because it's, it's a different lifestyle. You're on an island. There's not a whole lot there. So it very much depend on what my career is at um, and what I want to do with my business and everything. Um, <laughs> if I had to move to another, it's almost like another country, but uh, we've been, we looked briefly at Texas moving from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's practically its own country. Um, They'd like to be their own country. Yeah. Yeah. So, sort of. Um, yeah, I haven't really looked much beyond some of the Caribbean islands. Uh, and then we've also thought about Texas as well. Um, longer term, we're not really, again, in a huge rush to go anywhere right now. Um, but o- always looking at different options because uh, the the world is very globalized now, even though some of the COVID restrictions maybe made it seem like it's not. <laughs> uh, there, uh, there are lots of options out there and it's interesting learning about them. See what we got here. Why is it reasonable to clone successful investors who manage billions instead of finding your own ideas, given everyone here has a greater opportunity set than fund managers? That's a good question. I'll actually, I'll pass this one to you, Frank, because this is actually similar to your sort of philosophy. Yeah, so I personally think it's a bad idea to clone 13F filings. Um, I do use it as a rough idea of idea sourcing. Every now and then I'll come across an idea, Alibaba being one of them. But in the most part, I think 
retail investors should be taking advantage of companies that analysts and larger investors don't have access to. So looking at illiquid securities in a range of different markets across the world, where I think that's our biggest edge we can possibly have. If you're going to clone hedge fund managers, then you're asking for market average returns, as most hedge funds themselves have market average returns. Even some of the better investors that um, we like to talk about pretty much average market um, yeah, have about market average returns, except for when they were younger and they were looking into more illiquid securities. So even Buffett's best returns come from his very early days. Of course, right. he's kind of an exception because he did manage to continue to do well over a long time period. Um, but mostly, I think, um, as long as you have the time to spend investing and you really are dedicated to it, you should be looking into smaller companies to try and outperform and come up with your own ideas rather than copying others, which is another reason why I look at some of these smaller, less popular managers on Twitter that manage small funds and can access some of the same companies that I like to look at. Um, yeah, what do you think on that one? I know the other boys probably would disagree with that. Um, Brad's a big cloner, so I'm sure he would disagree somewhat. And that's not to say you can't do well if you do kind of sift through some of the best ideas in 13Fs. There's opportunities there, but I think we should be taking advantage of yeah. other areas. Yeah, to, to what Brad, Brad, uh, he's he's a cloner, but he he filters things pretty heavily. Um, he does. And he shows it all on the channel. So um, it's not as though he's blindly cloning everything, and I don't think any of us do because um, yeah. there's something to be said about but plus it goes it comes back to your own portfolio goals. Do you want market returns? Maybe a little more defense, less offense. Uh, that's certainly a valid strategy if that's what you want to do. Um, but if you're going for maximum growth, you're probably not going to find it in simply market returns. Um, but who knows? <laughs> um, I was going to mention that uh, I recently finished uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. It's a couple decades old at this point, but the whole thesis there is that uh, – you want to get to things before institutions buy into them because then that's when everything kind of goes out of whack anyways. Uh, and if you have some sort of industry edge, if you work in a specific industry, you see a company, uh, you're, you work at a company that uses a specific service that is new and um, could be something worth investing in. That's a big edge you could have that a typical Wall Street analyst might not even notice until uh, it's already run up quite a bit. So that that's a that's definitely an opportunity an opportunity that we all have. Um, and that's the big kind of argument that the book makes. Uh, look for those opportunities and you can have your one up on Wall Street, your edge on Wall Street, just by looking within your own your own circle of competence, really. It's a circle of competence book, uh, more or less. Um, and another edge to add on to that is the long-term investing edge, which most of these 13Fs that we're looking true. at, these investors are focused over sometimes as little as a quarter, maybe right. one to five years, depending on who we're looking at. So if you want an edge over them, you're looking long-term. So that doesn't – probably some of the companies they're buying into don't match that long-term investment horizon that we should be taking advantage of. So it really depends on the in individual investor that you're looking at um, is to how valuable they could be to clone. But the majority of 13Fs, I think, are fairly pointless for small retail investors unless you are trying to play it a little bit more safe and have – maybe market average type returns. But if you do want to outperform, I think like um, an industry edge, smaller or a liquid edge that you could have in micro caps and things like that and a long-term investment horizon that none of that comes from cloning someone managing billions of dollars. 
that's that's well said on like the quarterly focus. Um, I, I think um, to kind of like the, the the more passive investor arguments, there's there's certainly been a lot of studies and showing how look how poorly actively managed hedge funds compare to the broader market. Well, the thing is, larger hedge funds, uh, which make up that index of hedge funds, uh, are at a certain point, once they get big enough and have enough clients, they're turning into client preservation mode. And if clients are the ones who are saying, hey, we need, uh, why aren't you investing in Tesla after it's run up some thousand percent? Like, please invest in Tesla. I'm going to leave the fund. Well, they might do something like that. And is that really for long-term growth or is that more short-term just to keep their fees up to make sure they have more assets under management? So you got to look at the incentives pretty closely um, there. And I think it's unfair to just lump all active investing into that same category because the incentives of a very small hedge fund where it's a lot of the main principals own money at this point, it's not uh, it's not a bunch of um, uh, sort of retail clients that they're, that they're having to appease it's a it's a very different incentive structure that, than something like a much larger hedge fund where they have thousands if not tens of thousands of clients to to appease so another thing to keep in mind let's get a few more questions here uh the same person had a follow-up just slightly below that if you wanted oh yeah, to touch on that. that if anything if anything, why not clone investors who are up at who are up and coming small capital rather than the likes of Buffett, Munger, and Burbry? Returns and opportunities would be far greater in this area. I think that's exactly what you're getting at, Frank, and that's yeah. exactly and what that's what I, I try to do. That yeah. So I'm looking at mm-hmm. often. That's why I like Twitter as such a great place for idea sourcing. Is you can come across some of these smaller fund managers and even just private investors. Um, so someone like Jeremy Raper comes to mind. Um, even like Bill Brewster and people like that. They're more of the sized um, portfolios that I like to look at. Um, as I mentioned, Rob Vinnell earlier and Andrew Rosenblum, people like that are who I like to look at, and it's because of all the reasons we talked about. Right. Here's a comment from, uh, from Manu. Uh, with prior discussions of pure manager plays, Pershing Square, Equity Commonwealth, Berkshire, Daily Journal, Exor, um, do each do any of you weigh these companies' fundamentals differently than pure fundamental value plays? Um, well, I'll make a minor correction there. For me personally, with Equity Commonwealth, that was an asset play initially. The manager bonus of Sam Zell, I, I like Sam Zell and I've read his autobiography, which I really enjoy, and yet I like his philosophy on investing. That's a bonus. That was a bonus for me. Um, but initially, when I was making my investment in Equity Commonwealth, and I've since added to it, um, was because it was trading below its liquidation value, um, at least what I felt the liquidation value was. Um, so that so it was really an asset play at first, and it's become more of a management play. So even within these larger sort of like daily journal, you can make a very um, convincing case that it's trading well below its liquidation value, depending on how you value um, some of like the uh, their software as a service side of, of the business. So even within these sort of pure management plays, as you call them, it might not necessarily be pure management plays. They're, they're, even these uh, uh, name brand managers will have undervalued assets um, that, that could be very enticing on, in their own right. Yeah, I don't think I have much more to add to that. You pretty much covered it. Um, something like Berkshire Hathaway isn't a pure manager play, in my idea. That's just a great business all around. Everything about it is great. And you have the added added bonus of possibly the best 
capital allocator of all time. So, right. yeah, it really just depends on the business. Um, and I don't think, like, the idea of a pure manager play doesn't really make much sense to me at all. Um, like, I wouldn't invest in a terrible business just because it had a great manager. Although sure. there's a chance for a turnaround there, I think I'd prefer at least a reasonable business and a great manager, or ideally a great business, great manager would be what you're looking that, that, for. That, that's well said. Um, but with Pershing Square, for example, they tried J- uh, turning around JCPenney. Bad business. They put in what seemed to be a very great manager with a great track record, but it didn't work because it's a bad business. And and they made some minor mistakes that turned out to be major mistakes because it's amplified by being not a great business. So um, even within these quote-unquote pure management plays, you you can still run into the same problems if it's not a good business or if there's if you're pay- or if you're paying for way over what the actual asset values are and it doesn't grow into that. So For good sure. question though. Let's see. Maybe take a couple more depending on how yeah, you're going for time. Trying to I'm skimping a little bit just to get a few more. What was your light bulb moment that brought you into the value investing mindset? Um it might have been investing with Tom's videos some some time ago <laughs> now, because um, I was very much in the passive index field. Because I was I was really looking at real estate more specifically. I wasn't spending a lot of time looking at stocks, uh, but I realized so many of the fundamentals of looking at a real estate deal, looking at cash flow, trying to get something below market value. It, um, everyone said like, oh. The, the stock market's efficient as though that means it's accurate everywhere, which just doesn't make any sense because how can guys like Warren Buffett, is it just survivorship bias that they've been able to um, outperform the market for so many decades using a largely similar approach to, to how they invest. Um, and I, I took, it, it just made a lot of sense um, having seen some of Tom's videos and looking into it much further. That's kind of how I was introduced to it um, a while ago now, but uh it, it just makes a lot of sense coming from a real estate background for sure. What about you, Frank? Um, so I also started in index investing for a very long time. A long time ago, uh, going back about seven years now, I read a book called The Barefoot Investor, which is a pretty popular Australian book, um, similar to, I think, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's more of a personal finance type book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, there is a chapter in there about investing in into indexes. I think he actually mentions a LIC rather than an ETF, but that kind of set me down that rabbit hole. I eventually started investing in indexes. Then about three or four years after that, I read um, The Warren Buffett Way or The Buffett Way. Yeah, um, Warren Buffett Way. I forget the author, a yellow book, if that helps. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I have it on my shelf. <laughs> I haven't actually gotten <laughs> to it yet, but yeah. That was probably the main one that shifted me towards stock picking in general and really trying to analyze businesses. And then from there, you just go down a rabbit hole of Warren Buffett for a long time. Um, and then you come across everything else after that. YouTube and podcasts were a great place as well. But I think if there was a light bulb moment, it was probably that book. And um, Yeah, I don't have anything else there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Oh, or I just moved down the uh, chat. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm a natural <laughs> broadcaster. Yeah, I thought I about that as a kid doing baseball announcing. I'm a big baseball fan <laughs> here in the here in the states, the national pastime, um, and that would be fun. 
so thank you, <laughs> but no, no plans in the near future. <laughs> does a raise knee, does the intros to the videos. Yeah, Frank was my biggest supporter there. <laughs> so that, 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 that's why I open up the intros. I try my best, guys. <laughs> Got to get a Tesla question here. Uh, you can't think about Tesla without thinking of Elon Musk. I'd agree. Uh, do you think his leadership and public persona are a good thing or a bad thing for investors? Well, right now, a fantastic thing is look at what the stock's done. So. Uh, unless you're arguing that it would have done better without him. Eh, I don't think so. Um, I, I think his visionary approach to things has been critical for Tesla in its infancy. And it's still pretty, it's a still pretty young company. Um, so, so far, I think really, really good, even though he has his controversies and weird behaviors that you just can't really explain. <laughs> but uh I think he's been overall a massive positive for, for Tesla and really all of his companies. Um, I, I kind of doubt that if someone else was at the helm when, especially while they were starting and while some of them are still kind of starting, I don't think it would have done as well. Um, I think as the companies mature, he's going to become less important to the business. Kind of like what you were saying earlier, Frank, about like Alibaba versus a micro cap, the management's just not going to be as important most likely. Yeah, he's a hard. It's a hard one because there's such great positives and negatives on both sides. <laughs> yeah, he has that risk of just being such an out there character. He could say, and he said it many times, just these random tweets or whatever that can cost <laughs> share price, shareholders <laughs> a lot of money. It's amazing. Um, but you, it's hard to argue that he's not a great entrepreneur, visionary type personality. He started some of the best businesses in the world. Um, when it comes to capital allocation is where I would start to think Elon Musk is a bit of a risk and it's why something like PayPal that he was involved in early on probably done a lot better, not to say it didn't do great with him, um, but in the years following when some better capital allocators and management kind of stepped into the role. I would argue that that could be possible with something like Tesla, um, but maybe it's still in its infancy stage and you want someone like Elon with his visions and ideas going yeah. forward because that is what he's great for. But yeah, as it becomes more mature, he definitely becomes less important. Um, he's a good thing for early investors, maybe a bit of a risk the further you go into that investment. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's good. Um, that sounds about right. It's easy for value investors to hate on someone like Elon Musk, but... Oh, I, I love the guy <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for all, all right. of his faults. Uh, and as his, much his, as I his, like bag on Tesla as a stock, I love Tesla as a company or the too, product yeah. anyway. Um, so there's a lot to like about him at the same time as critiquing him, I guess. Good companies can have bad stocks. And who knows? Tesla still might be underpriced. You never know what it could grow into. <laughs> <laughs> Not financial advice, but eh, you got to ask yourself, what's the likelihood? <laughs> Okay, I like this question. On the Punch Card Investing Group, how how do you avoid the echo chamber of value investing? I think we talked about investment biases a while back, and this was kind of something we talked about in having to challenge certain approaches to things. Anything on that one, Frank? Um, well, specifically between the five of us and like talking regularly in our group and sharing ideas and everything, um, I don't find it that hard to avoid because I think we actually are more different than it probably comes across. Personally, I know I focus a lot more on smaller securities than everyone else, so it's easy for me to just focus on those 
micro-cap type opportunities where you guys mostly um, aren't doing that. I yeah. find it more hard with a YouTube channel. Um, when I start putting content out that's getting good views and there's, I kind of feel inclined to research those ideas more and more and I probably should be spending my time on new ideas or um, other companies. A lot of my best ideas don't make appealing content, so there's kind of that echo chamber that's hard to get out of as I just focus on what um, my audience and our audiences like to hear about. So that's probably my hardest one that I'm juggling at the moment is I'm probably wasting time on ideas that aren't as important to me. Sure, but they're good. But they're good uh, keyword optimizers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's a uh, for something. Yeah, YouTube's a double edged uh, double edged sword. Investing YouTube, at least, in that you can you can you're incentivized to dive really deep into bigger topics. Like, I mean, all the Pershing Square Tantine Holdings SPAC deal stuff. It in, it incentivized me to figure out what was going on there because it was very uh, very complicated. Granted, now it's all being scrapped, so it feels like kind of a waste of time now. But uh, th- that was good in that I probably wouldn't have gone as deep into that um, at least initially. Uh, but that kind of encouraged me that hey, this is big news. Let's really lo- dive into it quickly. Um, so that was good. But at the same time, like you're saying, I'm also incentivized to look more at Pershing Square than other things because that happens to do well for my channel at least lately um but it is my largest investment so i should pay attention to it at the same time so you know it's it's a double-edged sword um but i'd agree i don't think we have a true echo chamber here uh, um all of our portfolios are pretty substantially different uh, i know we pretend like karan and i have the same portfolio but we definitely don't um we just have two large holdings that are similar but everything else isn't i got a lot of real estate now um well a lot, relatively speaking. I don't have a lot. I'm trying to close in my third unit here. So, um, but so it depends. Uh, let's try to get maybe one or two more questions. I can answer this one quickly. How many units of real estate do I own? So I own two right now and I'm about to close on my third. I would have actually closed today, but we extended closing because there's this water line issue that will be fixed. Um, the seller's taking care of that, but I don't want to close on that until it's actually fixed. We're waiting on the city actually to come in the city of Chicago, which is very slow. Otherwise we've been ready for about a week. We're just kind of waiting for the city to notch things up. But so I will be at three very shortly. Um, cash yield. I have one in Indianapolis that's at about, uh, well, it has no debt on it. So it's like about 8%. Um, if I had more debt on it, it would probably be much higher, um, but there's no debt on that one. That's kind of like my foundational unit. Uh, and then once I move out of this condo I'm in right now, I'll rent that out. I'd have to do the numbers on it exactly, but it should be a pretty substantial cash yield, probably close to 10%. But I got this one a couple of years ago and I've been living in it. So I don't know what the exact cash and cash would be now. Um, and the one I live in uh, or will be living in actually won't have a cash on cash yield, but because it's 5% down and is super amazing financing terms, um, even though it won't cash flow, I should be netting around a 25% return on investment just from principal pay down each year, as long as the property holds its value. So um, that's pretty substantial. And plus I'll get to live in a decent place for a little while. Um, so it, kind of, it depends on what kind of strategy I'm using with each property. Uh, sh- Chicago deals are not going to cash flow as much as something like, an Indi- in, like the Indianapolis deals I'm looking at. So um, that's what I'm looking at there. Another one from Scotty. What magazines or newspapers do you read daily or weekly? 
What do you got, Frank? None. <laughs> um, I really pay very little attention to news. I um, have like Google alerts on for the companies that I'm following and things like that. But as for broader news, I pay very little, very little attention to that whatsoever. Even the whole COVID thing in Australia has taken off again. Um, I, I just don't pay much attention. I spend most of my spare time I get outside of work and I have a one-year-old and a lot of time on my YouTube channel then looking into investment ideas. I just don't have time to do any of that reading. I'm struggling to even read books, which is where I spent most of my time, say, last year or the year before when I had a bit more free time, was reading mostly investing books. I even find it hard to do that. So there's no newspapers or magazines that I read daily at all. The last magazine that I actually read regularly was the magazines one. exist still or yeah i i saw i got the economist the print version of the economist while i was prepping for the lsat which is like the law school admissions test um here in the states and uh the writing style is actually very similar to the things you'd face on the test so i was actually reading that almost every day um as like training for the lsat and then as soon as i was done with that i start i've stopped and that's pretty <laughs> much the last magazine i read and that was what uh probably four or five years ago now, something like that. Um, Otherwise, yeah, similarly, I don't really go heavy into a lot of the daily news outside of YouTube. Um, And I get a decent amount of local Chicago news just to keep up. Um, I I should say I follow a good amount of legal news. Uh, Bloomberg has a good like legal news article. Um, Cranes in Chicago is one I kind of follow, but I, I'm not like diving into every article. I'm just looking at headlines that seem interesting, and then I might look at the article from there. Um, so, just trying to have a feel for what's going on, but not certainly not spending a ton of time on it, unless it's good content. <laughs> There's a question there from Josh about investment. What drives your investment mindset? Yeah, that's be a good one to wrap up on. What yeah, drives to, your investment uh, mindset? Fire, financial independence, retire early. General wealth building, getting away from trading your life slash time for money, etc. Sounds like that's something you're going for, Josh. <laughs> um, what do you got, Frank? Um, I don't really follow the fire movement too much, but in a way, I guess that's what I'm trying to do. I would like to retire early. A lot of what I gather from the fire movement is people trying to wrap it up by their 30s or something like that. I'm just trying to maybe, if I was 50. 55 years old or something like that and could retire 10 years or 15 years ahead of schedule, that would be a great bonus for me. Um, I guess things like the YouTube channel is kind of an an alternative to the typical nine to five. If I could monetize that well enough, I would love to um, step back and maybe work part-time and focus more on content creation. Um, There's no really, like I can't guarantee that will happen. So it's just an ideal that I have. But mostly what drives it is I just enjoy doing it. I really, it's just a topic that I'm very interested in. I love looking into business. Part of my degree at uni was um, in business. I've just always enjoyed it. So that's what I spend my, it's kind of like a hobby to me, I guess you could say. Yeah. I don't pay attention to much sports or anything anymore. Um, I follow the UFC. It's probably the only sport, if you want to call that a sport, that I pay attention to. I used to like basketball and rugby league in Australia, but I kind of stepped back. I just don't have time. I don't pay much attention to that anymore. My my main hobby is investing, so that's probably the main thing is that I just enjoy it. 
that's definitely important, especially if you're going to pour as many hours as I'm sure you have um, into the channel already and will in the future. If you don't enjoy it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, even if there's a decent payoff at the end, which is no guarantee for any of us. Um, it's, well, I guess uh, that's why I was happy to do it, is that right. I, I was looking into these topics anyway. I'm learning about it. The only difference is that I spend an hour or two sharing that knowledge right. that I come across. Yeah, right. Documenting the, the Gary V approach. Uh, document what you're doing anyways. Um, plus it yeah. can incentivize you to get better at it too. Um, if that's something you really care about, uh, as for me, what drives it? Um, I mean, I have my flagship series of trying to reach financial independence by 30. It doesn't mean necessarily I'll just quit drop dead, um, and quit my job. It'll kind of depend on what's going on there. I have a very good opportunity right now, uh, at, at a large law firm in Chicago. I'll do that for the foreseeable future. Um, We'll see what opportunities arise there. I'm never going to say no to a good opportunity. Um, but certainly longer term, uh, I'm very interested in getting into real estate development. Um, so doing my own real estate development deals would be really cool. I'm still kind of wavering on whether I want to start a fund at some point. It probably would make sense since that's what a lot of the larger developers and syndicators do. Um, but that's kind of a different ballgame. I want to build up my own personal portfolio enough first so that whatever I do outside of it, it's... I'm not going to starve, <laughs> you know, uh, um, I, I want to build up that my portfolio personally for my family. Um, when we eventually have kids, I want to have that set up and ready to go. So I'm building the safety net right now. Longer term might get more aggressive with things like development. Um, and then I definitely want to do a lot of charity work as well. Um, even like a nonprofit housing sort of deal would be pretty, pretty awesome to kind of merge development with, with charity work. Um, again, longer term, building up the personal portfolio first so that those options are a lot more uh, feasible. But good question. I think we'll wrap it up there, guys. This was fantastic. We got a lot of questions and I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. Um, definitely come by next week when we have a much fuller crew <laughs> and, uh, and, and we'll be happy to answer them then if we, if we have time then. Uh, but otherwise very much appreciate it. Great talking with you, Frank. Um, always insightful. Yeah, you awesome. are. <laughs> And uh, a reminder to everyone, smash the like button, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, because again, we put out a new episode every single week. The audience grows every single week. Uh, we're up to almost 1,500 subscribers, so it's awesome to see the continuous compounding of this channel. It's only appropriate, right? Um, but otherwise, we'll, uh, we'll see everyone soon. Check out the Discord in the description below. That is free, and we talk about value investing stuff in there. Also a good place to ask questions if you want them posed on the, on the actual channel if you happen to be unable to uh, make it here live because I know the time zone challenges uh, are a thing for our viewers too. <laughs> otherwise, uh, I'll see you next week, Frank, and uh, goodbye, everyone.